You know, um, sometimes change in our lives can be quick and instantaneous. I've heard of some people who wanted to quit smoking or quit drinking or quit eating lots of sweets, and they just one day decided to stop and to quit, and instead of, you know, eating lots of ice cream, the very next day, it was lots of kale. They just made a change. Or maybe there was a a family or a person who wanted to make a big change in their relationship or with their finances. And they can think back to a day in their life where they put a stake in the ground and said, we are going to make a change. I am going to change things. And from that day on, things were different. That can happen, but for most of us, change isn't quite that easy or instantaneous. In fact, for most of us, big changes in our lives, well, I would say that change is a process. Change, when it comes to the big things in life, takes time and it takes effort and it takes hard work. It's a process. And sometimes there are two steps forward and three steps back, or three steps forward and two steps back. And sometimes that can be frustrating. That can be hard. It's not easy always to make change. If that's how you have felt in your life about something, I want you to know that you're not alone. We are um, in week seven of this series. We're taking a look at a person in the Old Testament named Jacob. And Jacob was someone who lived about 1,800 years before Jesus. And you know what Jacob understood in his life? (laughs) That change was a process. For those of you who've been tracking with us, you know that Jacob didn't just burst onto the scene in the Old Testament as some guy who had his life all together, who listened to the Lord all the time and did the right things. In fact, what we're going to see in a little bit today is that he's 97 years old. That's a little bit of history there, a little bit of life history under his belt, and yet he's still working on some things. He's still trying to figure some things out. And and the cool thing is that God, he hadn't given up on him. He hadn't left him. He was still there. And we're going to see that too. So what was was Jacob's problem? Well, (laughs) where do we start? Let's start in the womb. You see, Jacob was all about Jacob. And even before he was born, we see this me first mentality coming out in him. Again, for those of you who know or who are here, even as an unborn baby, he's grabbing on to his twin brother's foot, trying to be the firstborn, trying to to get ahead. And, And then we see this personality come out in him over and over again, probably the the biggest life event that happened to him that would change the trajectory of his life is when he tried 
to get ahead on his own, to try to control situations, and he stole the birthright that his father Isaac, or the blessing that his father Isaac was going to give to his brother Esau. And Esau, maybe you remember this, got so upset, so ticked at his brother that he vowed that when his father died, that he would find vengeance and kill his brother Jacob. And so in that moment, Jacob had to flee. He ran 500 miles away to an area where his mom was from and to his uncle named Laban in Haran. That's because Jacob had an issue with control and had an issue with being all about himself. And there was results behind that of taking things into control, trying to, 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 to make life all about what he wanted. It, it's, it's a good thing that we don't struggle with that anymore. We are me first people by nature. <laughs> and most of the time when, when people have a hard time with uh, the Bible or we saying that is oftentimes uh, people who also don't have children because you see it in kids. Like we don't have to teach our children to say mine. We've never had to do that. We've never had to teach our children to, you know, what you need to do is try to be the first in line to get the, the stuff first or to grab the most amount of candy. You don't teach that to your kids. We, we instead need to teach our children um, what it's like to let someone go ahead of them and that that's okay and to be happy for them. We need to teach our children what it looks like to give rather than to get, what it looks like to think of others more than we think about ourselves. And then you get to a certain point in life, you become an adult, and you never have to worry about that again. Oh, we wish. We wish that selfishness was only boys wrestling with toys. But we all are me first by nature. Literally by nature, by our sinful nature that was passed down to our parents, we think about ourselves first and foremost. And you know what? Even if you're someone here who maybe doesn't buy into the Bible being God's word or wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I think one of the things that unites all of us is that this idea of thinking about myself so much, it's kind of gross. Like you think about someone who, uh, let's say, all they ever posted online was pictures of themselves. You'd wonder about that person, like, Oh, okay, that, that's, that's not how I want to portray myself. When we think about ourselves the most, when we, we act out in our lives with, you know, me at the center all the time, even if you don't buy into the Bible yet, there's something about it that just doesn't feel right. Now, here's the other part of it, and this is what the Bible does tell us, is that me first will lead to an unfulfilled, unfulfilling life. Because after we spend however many years it is, and we're going to struggle with this, remember it's a process, probably all the way to the day that we die. 
But as long as we try to find our happiness or our peace or our security or whatever it is that we're looking for in ourselves with us at the center, it will always fall short. It will never ultimately fulfill. And here's why. You are not enough. You're not enough to find your happiness in you. You are not enough to find safety and security for the future. You are not enough to find contentment in yourself. Which leads us to our first fill-in for today. We need more than we are able to provide. And even when and many of us have been blessed to be able to walk with someone or a family throughout life. So it's not just us anymore. I'm going to take it one step further. We are not able to, we need more than what we or our families or any human being is able to provide. See, there is what I want you to see today as we continue in Jacob. There is a better way to live than with ourselves as the focus. And as Jacob leaves Haran and begins his way back to Canaan, he's still growing. He's still, God's still working on him. Jacob is still learning. It's a process change. And God wants to address with him how he is not enough and how he needs the Lord. So where we left off last week is that after 20, 21 years in Haran, Jacob leaves um, his uncle, who now, and you just got to read it or listen to the messages, who now also happens to be his father-in-law named Laban. He, he leaves Laban. It's a little bit touchy. You can listen to that from last week a little bit difficult, and it's kind of like for, for Jacob out of the frying pan and into the fire, because as he leaves Laban, now you know what he needs to confront is his past, which now happens to be his future, which is his brother Esau, who the last time they talked, and it really wasn't a conversation, it was more Esau just saying, I'm going to kill you. That was the last interaction that they had together. And so after 21 years, Jacob heads toward what we know today as Israel, towards Canaan. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob also, because Laban went on his way back to Haran, Jacob also went on his way towards Canaan, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanam. Now, I just want to pause here because you can't, you know, read something like Jacob met the angels of God and just kind of pass over that. This is not something that's ever happened to me. Angels appear in the flesh, at least not that I'm not aware of, at least. Probably hasn't happened to you. But it is interesting, the symmetry here in, in Jacob's life. Remember when Jacob left Canaan? One of that, that night before he left, God appeared to him in a dream. And in that dream, what, what was there in that dream? Angels, right? Angels ascending and descending, reminding Jacob that God and his angels would be with him. 
I think it is so cool and not an accident that as Jacob now returns to Canaan, what is one of the first things that he sees? Angels. God is still with Jacob. Verse three. So Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau, your servant, Jacob. You can tell already that, you know, Jacob's kind of getting in the mindset that I need to kind of butter up my brother a little bit. Your servant, Jacob, says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Uh, Most likely he's wanting the servant to say these things to Esau, just so Esau knows, you know, I have been blessed. I'm not necessarily coming back to, to take my double portion of the inheritance. It's not what this is about. I've got lots of things. God has provided for me. Now, I'm sending this message to my Lord, to Esau, that I may find favor in your eyes. So as I was trying to visualize this, I thought it would be helpful for all of us just a quick look at a map. So here's what's going on. Haran is up here in in the north, and Jacob is heading south towards Canaan. And you notice that Esau had moved from Canaan to the land of Edom. And somehow Jacob must have known that. Uh, uh, he, he knew that's where Esau was. But as Jacob returns to Canaan, he felt it to be very important that he would you know, figure some things out with his brother. And so as they get to the Jabbok River, Jacob then sends that message to Esau. Esau here to the, what would be that, west, no, east of Jerusalem and uh, south of Canaan. So how did that message get received? When the, the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So if that was the report that your servant brought back to you, about your brother who the last time you were with him wanted you dead, you would think and react in the same way that Jacob thought and reacted, that these 400 men are not a welcoming party or the welcome wagon. They are an army and that Esau is probably still ticked. That's what Jacob thought. Verse 7. In great fear and distress, the Hebrew uses three words to describe he is, a, he is afraid and, oh, by the way, also in great distress. Jacob is losing his mind. And so he divides the people who are with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. And, and you'll see later in the chapter, that's because if he thought the 400 go attack Half of my family and what I have, well, at least the other half will be safe. Now, how do you think of, or how do you respond, or what do you think of Jacob's feelings to the report that his servant brought? Well, I I think that probably your first reaction is, I'd probably have some fear and distress as well. 
Now, while that's understandable, one of the things that Jacob is not doing here is something that we sometimes fail to do when we're stressed out, anxious, and worried as well. You see, one of the biggest things that happens when we're feeling worry or anxiety is we allow the worry and the anxiety to continue to control and dictate what we're thinking and how we're feeling. And one of the most powerful things we can do in those moments of anxiety, and I'm not saying that this is easy, but I do think the Lord will work through it, is to pause and to tell yourself, self, I'm not going to let my circumstances dictate how I feel right now. But instead, I am going to prayerfully have you, Lord, and your promises and what you have said to me change the way I'm feeling because what you say to me, your promises, that's the truth. So if Jacob would have done that as the report comes of Esau and 400, you know what some of the things he would have thought about? Some of the things that were true in the midst of his great distress and fear? Number one, God is the one who told Jacob to go back to Canaan. Jacob didn't just decide, it's time to go back. I'm sure he felt like it was time. But God told him, go back to the land I am going to give you and your descendants. <laughs> Number two, Jacob had just been greeted by angels of God. Oh yeah, that little thing. Like an army of angels just greeted you as you came back to Canaan. And now he's freaking out? Number three, God had promised to give Jacob years ago the land that he was heading towards. And you know, right after this, if you read the, the chapter on your own, you'll see um, one of the most beautiful prayers in the Old Testament. Most definitely the most beautiful prayer that Jacob ever spoke where he does ask God to be with him and recalls some of the promises that God had given to him. And then you would think, you would think that after that prayer, after Jacob gets his mind and his heart straight, that it, it then would continue at the rest of the chapter that Jacob rested securely, knowing that God was in control. But that's not how the rest of the chapter goes. In fact, there's three paragraphs of listing Jacob's plan for how he would control circumstances and hopefully control outcomes and how not only what gifts should be given, but what order they should be given in and how many to be given and what the servants exactly are to say. We see Jacob being Jacob. And he goes back and he goes back and forth between trust and control and trust and control. And, and some of you might be thinking, okay, okay, what's, what's the problem with that? And it is true that God has given us minds 
and he has given us opportunities to make good decisions. And there was some of that probably in Jacob and his control. But let me illustrate to you the difference in where Jacob should have been and where he was and where we sometimes are and where we need to be um, with a little illustration over here. So I have this uh, water dispenser and the water um, contained in the dispenser, I I want to represent um, the entirety of God's plans and his purposes for your life. All the things that God has planned for you, not only now, but for the future, he knows everything about your life, and he's, he's got it. Now, as we go through life, here's where some of the responsibility comes in. This cup is going to represent you and me. Um, he gives us different things uh, that take some responsibility. Uh, so, for instance, uh, he gives you a job, And he dispenses a little bit of responsibility when it comes to your job. Uh, Like, it's important for you to show up on time, to give uh, a good effort, uh, to uh, take care of the financial resources that he gives you through that job, to budget, those types of things. You see, we have some responsibility, don't we, that God dispenses to us. Or or maybe uh, you're fortunate enough to maybe get married, and now you have some responsibility, like marriage is work, and you need to take care of her and love her, and wives need to love their husbands and take care of their husbands, and there's, he dispenses to us some responsibility. Or, Or how about when you get your driver's license? Yeah, there's some responsibility that he gives to us, like don't fall asleep while you're driving, like put the phone away, like be attentive. The car is not going to drive itself. You're given some responsibility. And you know what? Just like this cup is made to hold water, the responsibilities that God dispenses to us he only gives to us that which with his help we were made to navigate, and we won't do it perfectly, but we were made for that. Now, that's not what Jacob was doing. He was not just taking responsibility that the Lord had dispensed to him. What Jacob was doing was trying to control the future. He was trying to control the outcome. And as he did, he was forgetting that God was in control. And this is where the problem comes. And this is where we often feel some anxiety and some stress and fear and worry. You see, we were made to carry the responsibilities that God has given us and dispensed to give to us. But you know what we were not made to do? We were not made to hold up and to carry all of God's plans and purposes for your life. And can you guess what might happen if I take all of God's plans and purposes 
and rest it on this person, on this cup? Well, I can, I can show you what will happen. The cup wasn't made to control outcomes. It wasn't made to hold up all of the water. It was made to hold that which is dispensed from the water, or in this case, what God has given to us. And so when we try to control outcomes and hold up that which God rightly has, we're going to feel it because we weren't made to control outcomes. Number two, fill in. Don't try to hold what God's already carrying. Don't try to hold what God's already carrying. It's dumb, it doesn't work, and God's got this anyway, right? And it's a process, isn't it? Like, we're going to stumble and fall sometimes in this. But in the middle of it, I want you to pause and ask yourself, am I trying to carry that which God has? Where's my heart? Where is my mind? And so Jacob is um, trying to control outcomes. And uh, it's the night before he would meet Esau and 400 men. And we read in verse 22, that night uh, Jacob got up and took his two wives, you had to be here for the entire uh, series, and his two female servants and his 11 sons, and he also had a daughter, and they crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. After he had sent them across the stream, he then sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, we're going to discover as we read through the rest of the chapter that this man was no man at all. It actually was God in human form. But when Jacob started wrestling that night, he, at the beginning, he had no idea who it was. And he was in the middle of this wrestling match. Have any of you ever wrestled? Um, any of you ever been on a high school wrestling team? I think Pastor Matt confessed that once. Uh, I don't know if that's a confession or not, but yes, many of you, some of you have been uh, wrestlers. Uh, my only interaction with uh, high school wrestling was when we hit that uh, unit in gym class freshman year. And it was a good reminder to me that uh, wrestlers are uh, better men than I am and how hard that sport is. It is grueling. In fact, do you know how long a high school wrestling match is if it goes the entire time? Six minutes. Three periods of two minutes. That's as long as the wrestling match is. It takes energy, it takes strength, it takes stamina. I mean, like I said, wrestling is hard. Jacob wrestles all night for hours. He's wrestling with this man who turns out to be God. And you know one thing that we do need 
to recognize about Jacob? He was a hard worker. He wasn't lazy. When when there was something important to him, he gave it his all. We can say that about him. In fact, as we continue in verse 25, it says, when the man, God, saw that he could not overpower him. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that somehow God was less powerful than Jacob, and in some way, Jacob was able to be stronger than God. What this is like is when dad's, um, your your four-year-old says, hey, dad, can we arm wrestle? And you know what a bad dad does? (laughs) A a bad dad wrestles, arm wrestles their four-year-old and like gets it done in like one second. Like, yeah, son, look how strong your dad is. You had no chance. What, what good dads do is they, they let their four-year-old struggle a little bit. And, and they kind of struggle too, all along knowing that at any point, they're able to win that match. That's a good way of thinking about what God is doing here. He, he's, he's struggling with Jacob because he's allowing it to happen. He's, he's allowing Jacob to give everything he's got, all his strength, all his determination, all his power. And then what happens? The man touches the sock of Jacob's hip and it was wrenched. <laughs> Who was in control? God. They wrestle all night. Jacob's using all of his strength. The man who happens to be God touches Jacob's hip and he's done. And God wanted Jacob to wrestle a long time. He wanted Jacob to be exhausted. He wanted Jacob to know in his mind and in his heart that he gave everything he had so that he could learn that he was not enough. That we, my friends, are not enough. And then Jacob's focus changes. When he came to the realization that he was not like God, that he was not enough, look where his determination turns towards. The man said, that's God again, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob, with a wrenched hip, and oh, by the way, he would limp for the rest of his life, he replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. All of his focus and all of his determination and all of his strength turns from trying to control and trying to, in some way, like beat God to holding on to God as tightly and as strongly as he could. 
Once again, dads, it's, it's, it's like that son or that daughter who doesn't want you to leave for work. Remember those days when they didn't want you to leave, right? Um, I have teenagers. Um, and they'd grab onto your leg, and you'd be walking, and they'd be kind of dragged along with you, right? In a picturesque way. That's kind of what Jacob is doing with God. He recognizes that he is not enough. And so there's only in that moment one thing to do. He holds on to God and says, Lord, I need you and I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you are clear that you're going to carry out your promises. I am not going to let you go. Number three. So let go, guys. Let go, gals, of self-reliance and hold on to God. Do you know what we need sometimes? Sometimes in order for God to get through with us, and some of you have been to this point, we need to be at a point where we are tired. We're tired of trying to control. We're tired of trying to figure it out. We're exhausted from trying to control outcomes and figure out the future. And when we're in those moments, the problem is, is that we've been struggling with a me-first mentality. And what God is telling us today, what he wanted Jacob to see through this illustration that he had to experience to hopefully finally have it sink in, is that things change when it goes from me first to God first. And when God's in control, there is a peace and a confidence that he could have knowing that, you know what? Whatever happened with Esau tomorrow, well, it wasn't up to how good my plans were. It was up to God who has a plan. And there is a peace that comes with that. So how does that end? How does this end? Verse 27, the man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Now, remember what Jacob means? It's not a good thing. It means heel grabber or deceiver. Can you imagine for all of your life, when people ask you your name, you have to say a name that reminds people of some bad part of your identity. Yeah, I'm, I'm deceiver. It's in class, little, you know, Jewish class. Is deceiver here today? Here. That was his name. And every time he thought of his name, every time people said his name, he was reminded of who he was. But after wrestling with God, after Jacob holds on to God and will not let him go, here's what God does. He says, your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. What exactly does Israel mean? Well, Hebrew theologians and uh, they, they kind of, you know, trying to figure it out. El is the word, Hebrew word for God. It means something like uh, overcome with God, 
or victorious with God. That would be his new identity. Not deceiver, but with God, victorious. And I know that you've never had a physical wrestling match with God. But you have wrestled with him inside. And I know that God has never appeared to you and told you that your name is now changed. (laughs) But he has changed your identity. See, when, when Jesus went to the cross, when that great, 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 great grandson of Jacob went to the cross and died in our place and rose victorious the next day, not only were your sins forgiven, not only was heaven given to you as a gift, but your identity was changed as well. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, faith in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I don't know what you'd be called if you were named after your worst sin, but it doesn't matter. Because number four, your identity is not found in yourself but in Jesus. And when he looks at you, he calls you holy. When he sees you because of the cross, he calls you forgiven. He calls you loved. He calls you his son. He calls you his daughter. He calls you a part of his family. (laughs) So what are you going to hold on to? Your little bit of power? and little bit of control. (laughs) Hold on. Hold on to him. Not to your effort, but to his promises. Not to your strength, but to his. Hold on, not to yourself, but to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that... um, We are not what we have done, but instead we are who you call us. And through your son, Jesus, that is your son and your daughter. And Lord, as we remember that, may it spur in us a renewed desire to not control because as you know, Lord, we don't have much of it. But instead, to put you at the center and to simply hold on. And we know, we know that you have blessing for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.